right, you guys can be seated. Kids, you can head on back to your class, third through fifth fifth grade. You guys get to hang out with us. All right, Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 7, it's good to be back. Picking up where we left off uh, a couple weeks ago, but David kind of finished off for us last week, finishing off the Sermon on the Plain. We're going to see in Luke 7 where the, the, the narrative kind of advances for us here in Luke's gospel. And we're going to see the theme of our series, Jesus for Everyone, really kind of comes back into uh, full focus. Uh, this seems to be the touchstone for Luke over and over. He keeps coming back to this idea that Jesus is for uh, everyone. I remember in high school uh, learning what a thesis statement was. So if y'all can put your, like your, your thinking caps on and think back to high school, what a thesis statement was in a, uh, in a paper. Uh, I had a mean, awful woman that was my teacher uh, in high school. She was, uh, I'm not kidding. She was honestly not a good, not a good person. Um, uh, but I'll be honest, she was, she was a good English teacher. I don't know how those things seem to work together, but they do seem to work together. Um, I, I remember uh, my senior year, she had, a, she had an Elvis Presley like cardboard cutout in her room. Um, and somehow um, some seniors made that disappear uh, at some point. She liked that thing a lot. She, she would like hang assignments off of, off of Elvis and it disappeared. And she would get Polaroids of Elvis in various locations throughout Knoxville and the Carnes community and hanging off of the school roof and all kinds of different things with like uh, ransom letters. It was, it was fun uh, because we all did not like this woman. But she was a good English teacher. And I remember the first paper that I turned into uh, her uh, and she uh, very quickly began to pound this idea in my head that every single sentence, every word, every piece of punctuation in my paper needed to directly tie back to my thesis statement. And if it did not, uh, then it needed to be removed from the paper. Uh, and so I turned in my first paper, and when I got it back, I had never seen so much red ink in my life. Uh, I had worked so hard to reach the word count for this essay and added so many words that were not necessary, and she made sure that she knew, or that, that I knew, that she knew uh, that that's what I did. Uh, and so she had systematically gone through that paper and drawn a line through what I felt like was almost every sentence. Uh, she, she, she would take entire paragraphs and she would be like, this should be one sentence. And I'm like, but how am I going to make the word count? I don't understand how this, uh, how this works. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how to do this. Uh, but they got removed and I would have to go back and edit that paper. I hated it, uh, but it made me a better writer. And it feels like Luke's gospel, his goal in this gospel is that every sentence about uh, how Jesus ministers and how Jesus goes about what he does uh, was to, to communicate that Jesus was not just there for the chosen few uh, in Israel that have gotten their theology down to a T, but Jesus is for everyone. Over and over and over again, it feels like every word of his gospel is in there to reinforce this Point. Every lesson, every story. And today we're going to cover two stories. It took us almost two months to get through chapter six. It should not take us that long to get through chapter seven, but it kind of depends on how today goes. Um, 
And we're going, to, we're going to try to cover two different stories uh, that don't jump off the page. And what's funny is they don't jump off the page because they kind of feel like an ordinary day in the ministry of Jesus. But when you look at what these two stories are, uh, it's absurd that we would consider these things ordinary. But we do. Uh, and so uh, a lot of us, I, I wonder if we, would even, if we would even know of these stories very much because they seem so ordinary for the life of Jesus, but it will become very clear they are anything but. So we're going to start with the first. This is Luke chapter 7, 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, so when he had finished uh, his sermon on the plain, he entered uh, Capernaum. And now a centurion had a servant uh, who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal this servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with him, or went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So it's funny to me that a story like this just kind of, uh, we kind of shrug our shoulders like, yeah, I mean, that's what Jesus does. Uh, There goes Jesus doing his thing. And we don't really think much of the the fact uh, that Jesus just healed someone he had never even met. As far as we know, to to the the day that this this servant eventually died, the centurion eventually died, to the day that Jesus uh, ascended to heaven, he never met these people. He never saw them face to face, and yet he heals this servant. And we're going to look at these, the, these two stories. And so we've got to be quick, but there's a lot for us to, uh, to unpack. So first off, let's just kind of work through the basic facts here, because once we understand the basic facts, I think it will open some things up to us. Uh, Jesus, he's finished the teaching on the plane. If you'll remember all the way back to November when we started uh, this Gospel of Luke, I said that that not everything Luke tells us is in chronological order. He kind of bounces around and and groups stories together in order to to make a point. Uh, But every now and then he gives us some time cues, and we'll have two of them today that we will see uh, where, where we get this time cue, and Luke... Luke, I think, gives us those cues in order to make a point, to kind of tie one piece to another. He wants us to see these kind of go uh, together. So he gives us this, this time stamp where he says, after he had finished these sayings, he then goes, uh, and, and all the people had heard, he then goes to this uh, town, to Capernaum. So he heads to town, he gets into town, and word kind of gets out that Jesus is back. And whenever he gets, it gets, it gets around that he's back, he's not out, out on the plane, out uh, in the... Uh, in the woods or wherever he was doing his teaching, he's back in town immediately. The requests for Jesus start to pile up. We kind of blew by it back in chapter 5, but there's a note in chapter, uh, chapter 5 that it talked about how 
Jesus would often go to desolate places to pray, and he would, he would go and he would, he would get away. And you kind of get the feel that at, that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he isn't picking and choosing how he is going to minister anymore. He isn't picking his moments like he did in the synagogue to, to kind of come out and make his ministry public. People are coming to him and overwhelming him. He's overwhelmed with requests the moment he gets back into town. I can only imagine the exhaustion that Jesus must have felt in his humanity. And so that note that Jesus went away in desolate places to pray, that's not just because, because he, you know, praying is the thing to do. He, he, he needed that time to be away from the demands of the ministry. Constant request and constant opposition. I can only imagine how exhausted Jesus must have been. And then he gets into town, and immediately he's got a request. And the request comes from the elders in the town, which is a bit odd, not necessarily from, uh, from the, the, the usual cast of characters. This is not somebody throwing themselves at Jesus or even someone coming down from the roof. This is like, a, hey, we know this guy, and we need you to come and help. The request is... Uh, uh, a, a bit odd because it kind of comes from two places and neither one we would expect. One is the town or the synagogue elders. It's not really clear who these elders were, if it was just in the town or in the synagogue. Uh, and from a Roman soldier, and not just any Roman soldier, but a centurion, a man with authority over at least 100 men. So he's kind of a, he's kind of a captain of the guard. He's over a lot of different people. He's got some power and some authority. The elders you would expect to be in opposition, and the soldier you would expect to be uh, uh, you, you would expect to be at, at best indifferent to Jesus, if not completely skeptical. He's not from Israel. He's not looking for a Messiah. He's not looking for a rabbi. So you have two different people. One you would think would be skeptical, and one you would one group you would think would be in opposition to Jesus. You wouldn't expect either one of these two to, to come to Jesus and say, "We need something from you." You would expect them to come to Jesus and say, we want you to stop what you're doing. But they, they come, uh, and, and they come because it, it appears that, uh, that this, this captain in the army, this centurion, uh, was a friend of the Jews. He had paid for the building of the synagogue in town, either through his own means and his own money, or through leveraging his power and his position to kind of raise money for the synagogue. So this is an extraordinary thing. I, I don't really know of anywhere else we read of this kind of generosity or this level of, of kindness from a, a non-Jew toward the Jewish people. They were there to rule them, but this guy had helped them to get the synagogue built. He was a good dude. He had, he had done uh, he, he, he had leveraged, out of generosity, leveraged his position and his money in order to pay for this. So even the Jews, the Jews said that this non-Jew, this Gentile, was a man worthy to have Jesus minister to him. That is a huge statement. You don't see anything even close to that anywhere else in the Scripture. But these Jews say that this man, now he's not worthy to go to the temple. He's not worthy of that level. He's not, he's not a Jew after all, but he is worthy to have Jesus come, which just kind of gives you an idea of how they did not understand who Jesus was. But he says that they say that, that, that they, they, they believe that this man is worthy of Jesus coming. They wanted to help out this man. So Jesus sets out to meet this man. He says, all right, if you guys are... If you guys who are typically my opposition are coming to me and asking me to do this, 
then this guy has to be extraordinary. There, there must be something really going on. I think I'll go here. I think I'll, I think I'll go and help out this, uh, this centurion and his servant. So Jesus sets out to meet this man. But this man stops Jesus and he says, please don't come here. I know you've come this far to meet me. I know you've come after you just got in town, but please don't come here to meet me. I, I, I know that they have said that I am worthy, but I, I, can, I, I can assure you I am not worthy of your presence at all. I trust that you can do this, but I am not worthy, which just shows that perhaps the centurion understood who he was dealing with even better than the Jews did. He understood he was not worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. He understood that if, he were to, if Jesus were to show up, there would be this difference that, that didn't make sense. He shouldn't show up in his home. You can stay away, Jesus. I don't need you to come here. And so in all of this, I think we see a bit of why Luke gives us this story. Jesus had just ended his sermon on the plane saying, this, if you'll remember in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he had just ended his sermon on the plane. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And so what, what he follows with is the man who builds his house on the rock and, the sto- and, he, and it holds against the storm and it holds against the flood. And, uh, and, and, and I think this Roman centurion of all people, this Roman non-Jew This Gentile Roman soldier of all people is the living embodiment of that sermon Jesus had just given. I think this is why he, why uh, Luke ties this story uh, and these two things right next to each other. This guy loves his enemies. He is generous, maybe to a fault. He gives without expecting repayment. He offers no judgment of the Jews and in fact seeks out one of their rabbis. In a time when a servant would have been a completely disposable commodity, one that you easily could have gotten rid of and quickly forgotten, he seeks out help for this servant. He does it in a way that could deeply hurt his reputation amongst uh, his fellow commanders, his fellow uh, army men. He, he does it in a way that could hurt his reputation. And his fruit is obvious to all who know him that he is a good guy, that he is a good dude. Even, even those who would be his enemies, the elders in town, look at this guy and they say, this guy's a good guy. You should go and help him. All of those things, if you remember our study over the last couple of months, come straight out of Luke chapter 6 and the Sermon on the Plain. Loving enemies, generous to a fault. Uh, the, the, the fruit that he bears is good. No judgment gives without expecting. All of those things are the things that describe the man in Luke 6. And so Jesus says, I'll tell you what it looks like. A man who does my words. And then we have this example here of the centurion. A man who puts into practice the words that Jesus says. So Jesus says to his disciples, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do nothing I tell you? I'll show you what it looks like to do what I tell you. And then the soldier comes along. The embodiment of Jesus' kingdom ethic. But it comes from this secular Gentile soldier. Yet his faith is evident to everyone especially Jesus. The soldier turns Jesus away as he feels unworthy. Likely, uh, like I said, a clear picture that this soldier has a better understanding of who Jesus is than even the Jews do. 
And then the soldier makes this statement, which I, I, I feel like I could camp out here all day, but I'm not going to have time. But he says, uh, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does it. This man, unlike the Jews he's been dealing with and the opposition that is growing, understands on some level who Jesus really is. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a teacher. He's a man that has power. He's a man that has authority. When Jesus speaks, when he prays, when he asks, when he commands, everything, even sickness, listens. He has authority. From demons to withered hands to paralyzed legs and the centurion figures, if Jesus has this kind of power and authority, all he needs to do is say the word. If the centurion can send a message by a messenger to his soldiers and say, you go over here, and they say, yes, sir, and they go over here. If the centurion wields that kind of power, what kind of power does Jesus have? He makes those connections. He brings them together. The Jews demand signs. The centurion simply asks for the power of his word. He's not testing Jesus. He's trusting Jesus. He stops Jesus from coming to his house. Think about that for just a second. He stops Jesus from coming to his house. He had Jesus, the Son of God, on the way to his house. And he stops him and he says, don't come. There's no need for you to be here. All that's needed is your word. In this moment of Jesus' ministry, there can be hardly anything that is more unexpected. Everyone wanted a piece of Jesus. Everyone wanted to see the show. Everyone wanted to say that they saw this exciting new rabbi that's doing all the miracles. They wanted to be able to go to the, the town gate and say, did you see what happened? And can you imagine if he's able to go to these Jews that are his friends and say, not only did I see it, he did it in my house. You all should listen to this guy. He, this was what everyone wanted. But the centurion just wanted his servant healthy. And it And he believed that Jesus was the man to do it. All faith, no show. That was true in Jesus' day, that people wanted the show. They wanted to see it. They wanted to witness it. They wanted to to have the, the, the event, the experience. And the centurion says, no, I don't need that, Jesus. I just need the power of your word. That was true in Jesus' day, and it's true in ours. In a church culture like ours, it can be so easy to be drawn to the show, the music, the preaching, the lasers, the smoke machines, the chord changes, all the things that we do, the festivals, the conferences, the seminars, the Bible studies, all the things that we do in order to make things more palatable to everyone else come to the show and everyone in our church culture says the show is what i want this is what the vast majority of american christianity is built on the show it's built on the show 
And I would plead with all of us to examine our hearts and ask how much do we love the show versus how much do we love Jesus? I have no doubt that one of the most damning things the church will have to answer to before God is how quickly we sold the show instead of pointing people to Jesus. And no doubt some will face their day of judgment before God and realize they never wanted him at all. They just wanted all the stuff that comes with the show. They wanted the benefits. They wanted the show. They wanted, to, they, 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 they wanted everything that came along with church and Jesus. But they never really wanted Jesus. But not this centurion. He had no need for the show. He had no tolerance for it. it he, he didn't need it. He wasn't worthy even of the show. Not this man. He had no need. He had a need for a man with authority. That's all he needed and it's all that he wanted. And in this, it says, Jesus is amazed, astounded, taken aback. There's only one other time in all four Gospels that we see this word, that we see that Jesus is amazed and astonished. Once here, and once in Mark 6, 6, where Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith of the people of Nazareth. And what's so amazing is there's nothing that would suggest this man, this centurion, should have this kind of faith. He doesn't have the stories. He doesn't doesn't have the history. He doesn't know how God has worked in the past in Israel. Those people should have had the faith. They did not. Jesus is astounded that they did not. This man has no background, has no reason to be looking for a Messiah. And yet he understands the authority that Jesus comes with better than the the people of Israel. And he's astounded at his faith, at his faith. There's nothing that would suggest he would have this kind of faith. And yet here he is. And why is that? Because Jesus is for everyone. Not just those with long histories in church, not just those with a deep understanding of theology, not just those with impeccable church attendance or great giving records to the church, not those that, that can do all, not those moms and dads that, that, go, that go to church or those with moms and dads that go to church. This is, it's not just for all these people that have all of church in their background. Faith in Jesus is for everyone. The only requirement is faith that Jesus is who he says he is. I could spend all morning talking about this statement about the authority of Jesus. I could spend all morning talking, and there might not be a more countercultural thing to recognize than that the person that has all authority is not the person that we see in the mirror. This world prides itself on the power of self, self self-love, self-actualization. And then we build a world where all that's needed for approval is self-approval. So long as you approve of it yourself and your conscience is clear and how yourself evaluates things, that is the determining factor. Self-actualization. Make the self king. Put the self. We tell our kids if they can just learn to love themselves and reach that elusive place of being one with their true selves, then they will finally find happiness. 
You need look no further than every single corporation's slogans and logos in the month of June, in Pride Month, as we start here. It's all about being proud of who you are. The exaltation of self to the throne of your own little world. And listen, regardless of what your sexual orientation is, the, the, the assertion that our own self is what carries all authority in our lives is not the essence of happiness, but the essence of sin, rebellion, and ultimately misery. So whatever part of ourselves that we think we need to be the most proud of, whether that's sexuality or anything else, we've sabotaged our path to true happiness and we have sinned against our creator who is the only one that carries that kind of authority. Not ourselves, our creator. There is one person that can sit on the throne of our hearts. There is one person that bears that level of authority. It's Jesus. He has that rightful place because all authority is his. And his ability to heal a servant of a Roman soldier is a sliver of that authority. Just a small glimpse of it. I could stand here all day long, but I need to keep going because I think these two stories tie together. Right, and we'll never get done. So let's read our next story, Luke 7, 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, a considerable crowd from the town who was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and he touched the, the beard. This would be like the... The, it's kind of like a coffin, but it's really more like a flat piece of wood, kind of like the bottom of a coffin. Uh, and, the, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And the report about him spread throughout, through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. So, so Luke gives us another time stamp here, went from one to the next. Jesus uh, leaves from going to meet with this soldier, kind of turns to head back to, to town and going to this town, Nain. It says it's about, it's about five to six miles from uh, Capernaum where he was probably at. Uh, the the, the uh, archaeology from around that area, there's some, there's some tombs that are kind of on the, the outskirts of town that would have been the first thing he would have ran into as he comes into town. So uh, basically what you have is, is you kind of have these two different people that are, that are heading. So Jesus is going this way into town. The funeral procession is coming this way out of, uh, out of town. And so I, I don't know if this is, I don't, I don't know if y'all are about like big Chosen fans. We've not finished this last season. I don't know if this scene is in uh, The Chosen, this go around or not. But I can see exactly how this, this scene gets shot. Like I can see the way that this one, uh, this one plays out. These two crowds kind of working their way through the streets. One coming from out of town, one working their way uh, through the streets. There's wailing, there's a full procession. The, the mom and the, 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 her, her dead son are in the very front of the procession. There's wailers behind them. It says that there was a big crowd that was with them. Uh, evidently because she was a widow, many had kind of surrounded her and cared for her. So they were grieving with her. A big crowd headed out of town 
town. Jesus has made a big crowd with what he's done. So he's got his own entourage that's heading into town. And you have these two kind of like massive uh, groups of people that are kind of heading this way. And this, it, it's like they turn the corner and then like, boom, Jesus is right there. He's face to face with this, uh, this, this widow. And her, her, her dead son sitting in the coffin or on this mat that they've taken him out on. And they're both kind of taken aback, right? They, 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 kind, of, they kind of come around the corner. They, 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 they meet face to face. They're both kind of startled just a little bit. And the woman weeping over her son, she's weeping, she's wailing, she's sobbing. She is, she is completely full of grief. And then Jesus sees her. And he moves from being startled, from almost running into her, to, to his eyes starting to fill with, to, to, to with tears as, uh, as, he, as he sees this woman sob and cry. He hugs her, and he looks her in the eye, and he says, don't cry. Don't cry. I'm here. All will be well. And he looks at her, 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 her dead son laying on the coffin, and he says, arise. And then, uh, almost in my mind, like comically, the son just pops up and just starts chatting about the day and what's going on and where am I and how to get here and why is everybody so sad and what are we doing? This is what, I don't understand what's going on here. I mean, I can see like the whole scene in my, my mind. I can hear the dramatic music building. I can hear the silence when he says, don't weep. Arise. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene here. And, and here's the thing that's so weird about this story, which again, we breeze right past the, this story, even though Jesus just raised someone from the dead. I wonder if you were given, if you, if you had to list all the times that Jesus raises someone from the dead, I wonder how many of you would have included this story. I'm going to bet most of you, I would have totally forgotten about this story. It's just not one that we talk about a lot. It's not one that we know very. We know Lazarus. We don't know this one. He brought somebody back from the dead. And we read it like, ho hum, it's just another Jesus story. It's just what he does. It's, it's crazy how we, how we do that. And, but, but, but here's what's weird. Nobody asked Jesus to do anything. Nobody asked him. Maybe the mom was crying too hard and she couldn't get the words out. Maybe she was so full of grief, the idea that Jesus could bring somebody back from the dead. Maybe she was so full of grief she could never even consider that fact. I mean, that's probably where I would be. Maybe she didn't even know who Jesus was. But either way, there's no record that anybody, the disciples, the grievers and the wailers, the mom, nobody asked Jesus to do anything. He did it on his own accord. No need for a sign of faith. No need for someone to beg. No need for someone demanding a sign. No need for someone to fall on their feet before him. Jesus came upon a funeral, looked a grieving mother in the eye and said, Don't cry. I'm here. What was it that motivated Jesus to do what he did? 
If it wasn't the faith, it seems as though the the faith of the centurion is part of what motivated Jesus in the first story. What is it that motivates Jesus in this story? If it's not the mother, if it's not the urging of the disciples, what was it? Luke tells us in verse 13, Jesus had compassion. He saw a grieving mother and he had compassion. That's his motivation. Compassion. I can't tell you how much that soothes my heart. That Jesus would show compassion even when we don't have the words or know how to ask for it. He gives it anyway. We don't need to have the perfect prayer or the perfect faith. Sometimes it is just our tears that Jesus sees. And that's enough. Some of you here this morning may be somewhere near this woman's place. Everyone may know it or no one may know it. But you, like this woman, see no hope in your circumstance. You see no no hope in your life going forward. You see nothing but pain and sadness. The brokenness of this world has broken you. And you wonder if anyone can understand you or understand what is happening. If anyone sees you, if anyone truly cares, or if you're just stuck in a life that you never wanted and a pain that you never thought you would know. And it paralyzes you and it threatens to overrun you and overturn you. To you, Jesus looks you in the eye and he has compassion. He sees. He hears. He cares. Unlike anyone in this world can. And what does Jesus do when he sees? He acts. He goes up to the person at the front of the funeral procession and he says, don't weep. The preacher Alistair Begg says it this way. And he halts this tragic procession to the grave. That this is what Jesus does. He halts all the tragic processions to the grave. He is the only one who can. The one who is the only one who conquered death himself, stops the tragic procession to the grave. I wonder if you had been there, what your response would have been. If you were in that funeral procession and you, you went from weeping over a dead friend in one moment to chatting it up with him in the next. If you went to a funeral and the guy in the coffin pops up when the preacher starts preaching, what would you have done? I know what they did, and it's probably the same thing that I would do. They freaked out. They were like, what just happened? It says fear seized them all. And it was becoming clear to this crowd that this Jesus was not some ordinary Guy, He wasn't just a rabbi. Do you see the theme here that keeps coming out? Like they keep wanting to make Jesus some like, like rebel rabbi teaching some crazy stuff. And Luke's like, he's not just a rabbi, people. Look at what he's doing. And they recognize that he, he, wasn't, he wasn't just a rabbi. He was at least a prophet and maybe something more. 
It's interesting. You take these two stories. You want some like homework. You want to do some interesting like parallel Bible studies. Read the, the first story with the centurion soldier and the story of Naaman that we talked about with Elijah and Elisha. And then read the story of the, uh, the raising of the widow's son uh, in 1 Kings and in 2 Kings and compare those to these two stories. It's an interesting little parallel is there. And that was the message that went out from this day. Jesus is not just a, just a rabbi. He's at least a prophet and maybe something more. He spoke to a dead man and it, the dead man came back to life. Who can speak to a dead man and the dead man will answer back? Well, only this Jesus. And that is your story and mine if we are followers of Christ. Dead men, dead women that have come to life. He spoke to our dead hearts and they came to life. Dead in our sin and trespasses. Now made alive in Christ. Our own eternal funeral procession brought to an abrupt halt by the authority and compassion of Jesus. This is what he does. These two stories together make a powerful tandem. The end of chapter 7 will show the crowd still asking this question, who is this man? Next week we'll see the story of John the Baptist where John says, are you the man that we should be looking for? And if you're wondering, do all the stories have happy endings that Jesus is involved with in the Gospels? Wait till next week. We'll answer that question. But for now... Luke 7, we have two different, two different things where they're asking, who is this man? And Jesus, and, and Luke is giving us the answer, this is who he is. Who is this man and what does he have to do with me? Someone that is far from him. The answer, he is a man full of compassion. And he is God, full of authority. And he has everything to do with everyone. You cannot minimize him as a teacher. You cannot use him as a political asset or dismiss him as a snake oil salesman with some cool parlor tricks. He is full of authority and he does things that no one can do. But he is also a man full of compassion that loves as no one else does. He is exactly what we need. Exactly. Not almost exactly what we need. It does us no good to have a Christ that is all-powerful but has no compassion. It does us no good to have a Christ that is all-compassion but has no power. We need a man full of authority and full of compassion. And those two things find their complete fullness in one man, in Jesus Christ. Fear, astonishment, wonder, all are appropriate reactions for us. For us this morning, our reaction is worship. Worship one who has full authority over our lives. As one who sets the course, calls the shots, sits on the throne of our hearts and the throne of his kingdom. A man with full authority, not ourselves, but him. And it is worship to one that is full of compassion. 
That we would dare approach Him in prayer as compassion. That we would dare approach Him and ask for mercy. That that is a, a form of worship for us. That we would ask for forgiveness for exalting ourselves over Him is our only response. And that He would grant it is compassion. Yet He not only opens that avenue to us, He came to this earth to secure that avenue for us. That's what the cross is all about. It is using His full authority as a means to enact His full compassion. That is the God that we serve. This is the Son of Man, the Son of God, full of authority and full of compassion, using His authority in order to enact His compassion. He is not distant. He is not aloof. He is not disinterested. He looks us in our eyes, our tear-filled, fearful, prideful, broken eyes, and He does not cast us out, but shows us compassion. And He speaks to our dead hearts, and He says, Come alive. Arise. This is Jesus. This is who He is. And that's who we worship. And our ultimate act of worship is when we acknowledge who He is and put Him in His rightful place of authority. And so my simple question for you this morning is, have you done that? Have you accepted both His authority and His compassion? Have you accepted His authority as the centurion soldier? And have you accepted His compassion as the mom who is grieving and the son who is dead? That is the path forward to happiness. And it's the only path forward. Let's pray. Father, this morning it is our confession that that, that we live lives built around ourselves. That so often what we seek is not to make you king, but to make you our, uh, really kind of the, 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 the errand boy for us. But we know that you will not stand in that place. You will not stand in that place. You will not stay in that place. Your only place is rightful king. And we praise you for your compassion. That you use that authority on our behalf to glorify your name and to to show us love and compassion. May we know both of those things in their fullness this morning. And in this life, there can be no greater blessing than that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.